Hello and welcome to the latest Money Makers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. This is a weekly series in which I talk to leading professional investors about their investment approach and current thinking. This week, it's the turn of another experienced stock picker, Paul Mumford, who's been running what is now the £150 million Cavendish Opportunities Fund, a small and mid-cap specialist since 1988, as well as two other funds. He's also the author of a recently published book, The Stock Picker, which takes an interesting look back over his 50 or more years working in the financial markets. So welcome, Paul. I'd like to start, if I might, by picking up on this point about your long experience in the financial markets. Just tell us briefly where and how you started in the city those years ago. Yeah, um, I started in the city in, in uh, 63 when uh, I was having a bit, bit of a problem actually getting a job at the time, but I, I managed to fiddle my way into the back office of a stockbroking firm. I gradually sort of went up to becoming a, um, a property analyst and then an asset situation analyst and then a, a small company uh, man. So I worked uh, in the stockbrokers from 1963 till 1988, I suppose, when Big Bang came along and I decided that as commission fees were going to be uh, cut to uh, ribbons, I I was going to uh, jump over the fence and uh, move into fund management because on the one hand I had a lot of stocks and on the other hand I had picked up a a lot of institutional clients um, in in the meantime and, uh, you know, it looked to be quite an exciting area to go into. So, of course, the city has changed a lot in that time. When you started, there was there was still, um, as you say, before Big Bang, it was all regulated, or it was, it was unregulated, sorry, um, all run by um, the stock exchange. You could deal within the account and all those sort of old things that perhaps younger listeners won't even know about. But what was the main thing that you would say, you know, characterised the regime that you worked in when you started and the re- regime we have now? Well, I think at the moment things are about to change quite significantly with this MIFID two coming in. This is it's, EU regulation we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, it's going to favour the, the uh, probably the larger fund management companies that have to pay for research and have got a lot of money in the, in the kitty to, to do this. Luckily, I do my own research, so therefore I, I don't really see, see the need to uh, fork out extortionate fees. In those days, there were no uh, TV uh, screens. The dealing was on the floor of the stock exchange between stockbrokers and what they called stock jobbers, which is a, a name for a, for a market maker. And it was quite a sort of gentlemanly act. And the motto of the stock exchange was my word is my bond and uh, consequently people were very strict on that particular point Uh, had they broken the code then then they would have completely lost their career Uh, nowadays of course you've got sophistication you can see share prices changing by the minute you you can deal on computer screens and it's a much more efficient market and the turnover is much greater and um, you know, it's probably much more exciting, at least it is from my point of view, because um, you've also got better access to company news. In the old days, you had to look at a ticker tape for prices, you had to look at a ticker tape for uh, company results, whereas nowadays, 7 o'clock, you get all the results coming out and uh, you can follow your prices during the course of the day. So it's a much more um, transparent and uh, equal world, I guess you'd say, for those trying to pick stocks. But on the other hand, I mean, there was opportunities that came from different sources in the old days. I mean, there was a bit of insider trading, I guess it's fair to say. And there's also your relationships, your contacts were, were very important in order to get access to information. Well, the, the, the insider trading thing was, was, was quite sort of interesting because if we ever got any inside information uh, as a firm, the firm's dealers would, would go up to the, um, the jobbers or the market makers and they would just say to them, look, don't go short of this stock. 
but they wouldn't pass on any information and they wouldn't deal on the inside information. If they did so, then uh, they'd basically be uh, sort of kicked out, out of the stock exchange because the stock exchange is really a sort of a member's club where to be a member, your, your principles had to be very high. And indeed, uh, a number of firms, a number of brokers were thrown out of the market and some firms were hammered and, and put out of business effectively when they were caught transgressing in a way that was considered unacceptable by the club. That's right, yeah. Putting that together, though, when you, when you think of how you operate today as a stock-picking fund manager, is it harder or easier, really, on, on balance to operate now? You're up against more competition. You've got international competitors as well looking at share prices and so on. How would you assess that? Well, you don't worry about the uh, competition. It's an exciting place to be because um, I specialise purely in the UK market, in the small cap and uh, mid cap area. I basically get into the office at six in the morning. I look through the newspapers. The company news starts coming out at seven o'clock. I look through all of the company results. The ones that I'm interested in, I go through in further detail during the course of the day. The stock market tends to start opening at 10 to 8 and it's open by 8 o'clock so I can put my early orders on and then during the course of the day I can uh, monitor my prices as well. The big advantage of course is that with uh, modern technology I can do this when I'm away on holiday. So consequently not only do I have my mobile phone with the prices on it but also um, I have my laptop computer where I get access into the office. The other important point is that uh, because we're a relatively small firm, I actually do my own uh, dealing uh, with stockbrokers and uh, I can place my own orders rather than having to go through a dealing desk, which effectively means that um, brokers will treat us as a, as, a, as a much more important client than maybe we are because they know jolly well that I can make an instant decision and, and can give them an order first thing in the day and we don't have to go through committees or get shares on a recommended list etc etc and I think it's very important to be able to have this ability to deal um, efficiently when you want to and it's, it's quite exciting as well. And how much time do you actually spend in the city? Do you actually work in the city or do you do some work at home? How do you split that balance? I spend no time in the city whatsoever. My office is, is based in Hang Lane, and uh, I'm in the office every, every day of, of the week. Basically, companies come in to see us, and the uh, stocks I've got in my portfolio is in my Opportunities Fund and my AIM portfolio. They both have about 70 stocks. There's some overlap, but not a lot. And companies will come in and see me at least twice a year when the results come out. And if they don't come in, then I have a conference call. So consequently, I'm having these one-on-ones the whole time. And in fact, when I get back to the office today, um, I've got a company presentation at uh, 1.30 this afternoon, and I've got three tomorrow. And generally, in the results season, I'll have about two or three a day. And it's very sort of exciting and stimulating actually meeting the companies and and getting the horse's mouth view. Tell me a little bit more about uh, Cavendish, the firm. Uh, how it started. It's a privately owned company, I imagine. Uh, I'm sure it is. And uh, how you came to be involved with it. Uh, Well, Cavendish is a uh, subsidiary of a company called Lewis Trust Group, which is one of the biggest um, private uh, companies in the UK. That started off as um, a small retailer and became River Island, uh, which is now their, their main source of business. Cavendish is a fully owned subsidiary of Lewis Trust Group. So consequently, from a fund manager point of view, I, I don't have any sort of particular interest in the shares or, or pushing the share price up because uh, 
the company owns the whole of the capital, which I think is you know quite a good thing. And therefore, I don't have to aggressively sort of market my funds, which again is quite a good thing. Cavendish was formed uh, because the index back in uh, 73, 74, was the 30-share index, which was replaced by the 100-share index later on. And the 30-share index fell from uh, 520 down to 260. And the Lewis family, who owned uh, Lewis Trust Group, invested um, a million pounds in the market because they felt that there was really good value there. But what would happen? The index halved again, and it went down to uh, 130 at the end. And they, they put another, another million quid in, into the market. And within a three-year period, that had grown to about £8 million. And luckily, they were dealing with me as a stockbroker. So consequently, I was responsible for uh, picking the, the stocks over a whole range of industries, sectors, companies. And we were buying sort of stupid uh, things like, um, you know, property companies at British land at sort of 10p. And within six months, the share price had gone up to about £1.50. And, that's where you got all your uh, sort of ten baggers and things, and in '73 I, I found that um, you know with the, with the crash it was quite a difficult time, and I learned a lot of lessons. The biggest lesson to learn was love your bear market because uh, mm. when you get a bear market, the the good stocks and the bad stocks all come down together, and the good stocks come down probably further than the bad stocks because they're the only stocks that fund managers can actually sell because of the marketability. So consequently, from a stock picking point of view, you can find a lot of really, really interesting stocks in the in a bear market. Well, but of course, the same applies today. You know, there's always great situations around the place because some sectors are sort of in favour, some themes are relevant, and other themes are less relevant, and, and some sections of the market are completely out of favour. And those are the areas that I go hunting in. So, I mean, you make an important point there about taking advantage of disrupted markets or markets which have fallen sharply and so on. Uh, I suppose the only corollary to that is that you do have to have the funds available, like the Lewis trusted, uh, to take advantage of those situations. You can't be so you can't necessarily be you know one hundred percent committed going into into a, a bear market. Well, that's very true. But there again, most people are invested, you know, one way or the other. I think that um, people tend to tend to get worried when when the market's dropping away, and and they do the wrong thing. They they sell when they shouldn't sell, when the market's dropping, and, the, and they buy when they think uh, it's, it's not going to change, it, it, it's all good and, and everything, everything's great this time round, and they, they do do the uh, completely the wrong things. But the 73 for crash was the thing that taught me, you know, to do what's right rather than uh, follow your uh, sort of particular uh, instincts. I covered in, in my book, a, you know, a couple of chapters on, on my great sort of disasters on stocks I've, I've lost money on and uh, uh, not necessarily through through my own fault but you, you can get the market wrong and therefore I believe on having this big spread of interest because if one goes wrong then it can have a big impact on other other areas and inevitably you're, you're going to find uh, you know some stocks that um, don't work but if, if you um, invest in 70 stocks where you're putting, say, 1.5% of the fund in that each particular stock. If a stock goes wrong, you're losing a penny halfpenny in the pound. If it's a 10-bagger, that means up tenfold, then, of course, mm. you know, you're, you're making the, uh, 
equivalent uh, rewards. And, the, and the, the name of the game is sort of searching the pond to find all these little fish, fishes that will grow into... Uh, 40-year-old goldfishes, which are sort of 10 times the weight and 10 times the size. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your style as a vester. I think it's, in the book, I was quite amused, you, you uh, draw some analogies between uh, investing in the stock market and other things you're interested in, like music, and in particular, football struck me, where you've been a supporter of Wimbledon and Fulham over the years, which is uh, perhaps an indicator that you've got a contrarian streak. You're not uh, you're not looking for the, the big branded companies to uh, to follow. And that might be a good uh, a good metaphor for how you go about picking stocks, I guess. Yeah, well, my, my other football team is the Red Devils, and which everybody will know, uh, familiar with football, is Crawley Town. You get so much excitement from a, a team like that um, beating a bigger team. If if Arsenal beat um, West Brom last night, well, they're expected to do it. If, if if they were to lose, then gosh, you know, this would be a bad bad sort of thing. Um, so searching around, um, you know, in the stock market for the smaller stocks really sort of gives you the um, adrenaline flow of, of getting something right in a reasonably big way rather than just sort of trawling with the crowd. So, for instance, why buy your, your shells or your BPs when you can buy your smaller oil companies? You can find your hidden gems and you can get your, your, your 10 baggers out of it. Why buy your Glaxos and your AstraZenecas when you can find the smaller healthcare companies that are going to thrive over the longer term? So my smaller companies are like my smaller sort of football teams where you can get a, a decent sort of result and uh, not everybody's sort of following them. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, you do, as you say, most of the time you're investing in the smaller mid-cap area of the markets. And obviously there are times when, well, they, they, they typically outperform over the longer term, uh, but there are times when, when they don't. Uh, at the moment, uh, post-Brexit, smaller mid-cap stocks have had an interesting ride over the last year. Do you think it's a particularly good time to be looking at small mid-cap stocks or, or a particularly bad time to be looking at them? The reason that it's a good time for looking at small stocks is a twofold. First of all, there are a lot of uh, undiscovered stocks around the place because they're under investors' radar screens because they're too small. And um, secondly, the economic background is suitable for smaller stocks. By this I mean you've got a low level of interest rates and the banks are fairly receptive to um, smaller company borrowings. The time to get out of small companies and, and, and to avoid that sector is the time when interest rates are high and rising and banks suddenly decide to get um, pretty cautious on, on their outlook and, and or, or you, you get another sort of banking crisis because in those sort of circumstances they won't necessarily pull the rug away from large companies but small companies uh, would have difficulties. Again in the book I do cover several of these situations where banks have uh, pulled the plug and uh, small companies have uh, unjustifiably uh, gone under. This is the, um, the sort of background to be wary of. Otherwise um, I think, you, you know, with the um, smaller companies, you've got quite a number of quite exciting sort of IPOs coming onto the market. You know, the AIM market in particular is um, looking uh, quite attractive. Yes, some of the larger AIM stocks are overvalued because they're the only ones that large funds can invest in. But on the other hand, some of the smaller companies are still uh, significantly undervalued. 
Well, AIM has been an interesting um, development for the UK. I mean, I think most people would agree it has been a success, even though if you look at the kind of headline index number, it's hardly changed over the 20 years it's been going. But within there, there are some fantastic companies, as you say, some of them very richly valued and some are neglected and, and cheap. I mean, I'm looking through your portfolio this morning, and I see you've got one of those, uh, at least one or two of those more expensive ones. You've got Advanced Medical Systems, for example, Solutions, whatever it's called, at 286p. It's on a P of about 25 or 30 or something, and has been going up steadily for many, many years, paying a consistent dividend growth and so on. How do you uh, rationalise owning a company like that, at that, at that valuation? Well, effectively, um, those shares cost me, I think it's about 10p or something. As you say, rightly say, it's about 280 or so. Effectively, um, you, you're, you're looking at the um, acorns to start with, and then, then, then you're getting into uh, saplings, and then you're getting in, into oak trees. Advanced Medical Solutions is just one of my 70-odd stocks. Uh, the company has got um, bright prospects uh, expanding into the states, etc. Strong balance sheet. When I bought it, the the, the market um, size of the company was sort of ten million quid. Now it's got fifty million quid worth of cash in the balance sheet. Uh, strong balance sheet, good management, overseas expansion, good products sort of coming through. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't mind uh, that sort of, sort of rating because um, you know I feel that they've got the uh, the business model to justify it. So I am happy to hold hold some stocks. However, having said that, um, my funds are can be relatively sort of active, and um, particularly in the opportunities fund, where I only hold um, one stock since um, sort of 1995. Uh, but the other point I'd make about the AIM index is that the AIM index is is very volatile because of the number of large large stocks in it. I started my AIM fund in 2005 when the index was uh, about 1100. In in 2008, it went down from uh, 1000 to about 370. And it's only just breached the um, 1000 level again. It's about sort of uh, 990. When I started the AIM fund, um, it was probably the wrong time to do it. I, I issued the shares at a pound. The share price went down over the time of the crash to uh, probably about 50, 55p or so. And uh, now the share price is, is, is £2.60. So even if you look at the start of the time, when the index hasn't changed, the, the share price has gone up from a pound to two sixty. And if you were lucky enough to add to it at the lower level, which, which I did as well, then uh, you, know, you would have uh, made five times your money. Yeah, so you know, I, I think the market in AIM shares is um, quite attractive, but the, the index doesn't necessarily reflect uh, what it's been doing. I mean, again, looking at the top, I looked at the top ten holdings in in the Opportunities Fund, um, and we've got a variety of, of some growth things which are on quite high multiples, and some things which are pretty cheap, and which I would guess you'd call recovery situations. Perhaps you could describe a couple of those anyway to uh, well. To us. Effectively, you shouldn't be looking at the top ten; you should be yeah. looking at the bottom <laughs> ten. The reason you're looking at the top ten is because they've each had a 1.5% initial investment in it. And because the share price has gone up so much, they, they are in the, in the top 10. You know, basically, the, the ones to look at are the, are the, are the ones that have got, um, you know, 1.5% of the fund in them, but not the ones right down the bottom, because they're, they're the ones that have gone wrong, you know. So if, if you see I've got sort of 0.6% in uh, some funny little mining company, it's purely because um, it's one that I've, I've bought and it's been an absolute disaster. However, you know, uh, you have to sort of 
bear these uh, s- sort of things in mind. And um, well, fortunately, one of the reasons is that, of course, it's quite difficult for uh, ordinary investors to get access to the full portfolio list in uh, in funds such as yours. I mean, it's in the annual report, but it's uh, it, it's not always available readily. This is very true, and. Um, you can get, get get a full listing in in if you look at the annual and interim reports mm-hmm. from from the fund managers that that does have all the shares uh, listed in it and also the fact sheets that, that come out um, give you the changes um, each month so there is a, a way of, of following it. So if we if we were looking at the full portfolio and this of course is not, I'm not asking you for a recommendation of tips but can you give us a couple of examples of stocks that you are. You think have got particularly good prospects. You're obviously not recommending them to other people, but I'd be interested to know what you think in the portfolio you have some uh, perhaps greater the conviction in than others. Let's start with the uh, resources sector, well, the oil and gas sector. I know you're, uh, well, you're interested in that one. Oil and gas sector, that, that's really been sort of shooting the lights out today because the oil prices have gone up and uh, I've got several shares in the uh, AIM fund and several shares in the... Uh, Opportunities Fund. In the Opportunities Fund, uh, the safer stocks would, would be Cairn Energy, Tullow, which are you know about the billion pound market cap, or or Faro uh, sort of sort of petroleum. In the AIM Fund, um, I've also got Faro petroleum, but then I've got you know, much more sort of racy stocks, things like Hurricane uh, N- Energy, where the share price two days ago was twenty seven p, and they're sort of up to thirty one p today. Um, it doesn't have production, but it will have production by by 2019, and has found one of one of the largest um, uh, finds in the uh, North Sea. But um, as I say, it doesn't have any any cash flow, so that's sort of quite interesting. Um, a stupid stock, um, which um, came out uh, right at the wrong time, is, is a company called. Um, Rock Rose, where where they raised some money a few months back at a price of one pound fifty, and the, the share price is now one pound twenty. The funny thing about the company is the fact that um, they didn't actually need the money, because what they do is they buy interests in mature assets, and companies pay them money to take those assets off their hands. Why do they do this? It's because of the the fact that when when you've got uh, decommissioning, the decommissioning charges can be quite high. But to a company of this size, they can continue the um, production for a much longer period than a large larger company would, and therefore they're getting a pretty decent sort of, sort of cash flow from that sort of mi- uh, business model. And another one I've got in the smaller end of the, of the market. Um, is one of the largest um, onshore UK acreage owners, a company called iGas, which came out with its results um, a few days ago. That company has got production which will give it a positive cash flow, and it's also got a fully funded uh, major development program, exploration program in the UK. So that can be quite an exciting one. But I'm looking at all these things over a sort of five or ten year period. Now, should the oil price improve, then that's really sort of icing on the cake. But in the meantime, if you've got a profitable company um, such as um, the ones I've mentioned, then um, yeah, great. You know, you're you're uh, unlikely to see them sort of go under. However, there are dangers there. I've had two companies go bust on me this year, purely because of the result of the bankers or the loan stockholders. One was a company called um, Excite, which owned the field in the North Sea, which um, had great sort of potential. And they had a sufficient cash to uh, 
cover the uh, payments of interest, but they, they had it insufficient to cover the capital, and the bankers pulled the plug. The other one was a company called Circle Oil, which had uh, production, which again could cover the interest charges, but they didn't have sufficient cash to cover the loan repayment, and the bankers sort of pulled the plug. Both of these should have really survived, and they probably would have done, uh, you know, sort of $60 a barrel. And uh, But that's the reason for having a diversified portfolio. You're hoping, as I have done in the past, to see several ten-baggers in, say, the oil and gas sector, but a few of them to fall by the wayside. And the ones that fall by the wayside won't do a lot of damage to the portfolio because I haven't got a big exposure there. I just want to pick up one point there. I mean, you made it, I think, quite clear. But the point was that you, you're you not making these investments on the basis of, a, of an oil price forecast. The oil price fall of a couple of years ago might well have created an opportunity because of the overreaction of the market. But it, it, it's not purely a, an oil price uh, No, no it's, it's a high-risk high area. I, I think at some stage the oil price will sort of, sort of recover. And uh, the great thing about the oil price dipping back is the fact that... Um, Costs have, have been much much reduced in in these sort of oil companies. So you've got some companies where which were producing at fifty dollars a barrel, but they brought it down to below twenty dollars a barrel. And uh, the, the oil price is um, you know a uh, function of um, what you you might be able to expect in in the future. Uh, I've got a um, a very highly geared company in the um, opportunities portfolio called Enquest, and Enquest is a North Sea oil producer. And it's been plagued by the, the fact that um, one of its um, important uh, new production areas is late sort of coming on stream and the share price has dipped back. The ma- management feel that um, at sort of $50 a barrel, the company can sort of pull through sort of reasonably well. At $55 a, a barrel, then they're very comfortable with life. At $60 a barrel, it's cigars for everybody. Right. So it can show how much, you know, any change in the oil price falls straight through into cash flow and the bottom line. And, uh, you know, any any rise in, air, in in the oil price, which people aren't really expecting, is pretty good for, for these uh, companies. So it's highly geared to the oil price, that particular case. And has got that a lot of debt, I believe. Yeah. So high, well. high risk, high reward. Yeah. Okay, well, let's try another sector, uh, another one I know you're interested in, um, and some people might find this more surprising, uh, is the retail sector. Everybody's bearish on the UK domestic economy. Apparently, the sentiment is meant to be poor, and uh, no one wants to touch some of these things. You've got companies like Next, which are you know great companies, British companies, no one wants to buy at the moment. Uh, what, are, what are you interested in there? I think the, the main point is that, that it's been a bit, a bit of a doggy sector and people are saying, well, consumers aren't ever, ever going to spend. They've got a lot of headwinds. They, they've got the minimum wage against them. They, they had the um, sterling fall against uh, sort, of, sort of input costs, etc. And um, share prices, apart from the very high-flying internet companies, um, were pretty, pretty sort of depressed. So consequently, this is the opportunity I saw to buy stocks that people sort of hate at ridiculously low levels. So um, I've got a holding in uh, in Debenhams, which people absolutely uh, detest. Both, I've yes. got a holding in, in Mossbros, which is trading sort of exceptionally well and, and will, will do well in the future. Uh, I've got a holding in a, a, an IPO called Quiz, which... Um, does internet um, trading as well as having having shops, and it's been around for some time. And um, you know, I, I feel that uh, 
when the pound recovers, then the domestic stocks will come back into favour. And lo and behold, what has happened? The pound has started to recover. So this has put a headwind on the overseas earners, but created a good opportunity for the domestic stocks. And another sort of similar type of sector would be the um, the, the pub companies. So companies like Marston and Green King have fallen to ridiculous levels. Everybody hates them, but look at the yields on these stocks. That that, that will pay for them th- themselves. I've got both of those in the Opportunities Fund and, uh, you know, love them to bits, really. You can even make a case for the sector that I, you know, absolutely hate, really. That's, that's the uh, food retailing sector. You've got your stocks like Sainsbury's, which will benefit from the Argos acquisition, particularly when the Argos rents uh, fall due and the the leases run out and they can switch to uh, their stores. Or or even our old friend uh, Tesco, which has underperformed the, the, the whole of the sector. They're actually sort of doing a lot better than they were before and, uh, you know, probably represent a, a decent uh, acquisition if one's looking at sort of large cap uh, stocks. Well, I'll come back to the point about the uh, the consumers in a moment, but uh, there's one more sector I think I should ask you about, which I think you're interested in, which is property companies. You obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, you many years ago, you uh, you spent time doing uh, research into property companies, into asset back situations. But uh, what's, what's the attraction of the property companies you're interested in now? Well, the attractions of property companies, first of all, people, people don't like them because uh, they feel that the property values are uh, going to decline. Yes, I mean, the I'd be a bit nervous about house builders. I haven't got any house builders uh, really in, in, in the funds. But genuine property companies look good. They're standing at decent discounts to assets. And the other sort of attractive thing is that um, because of the uh, fall in the pound, it makes uh, property companies much more attractive to sort of overseas investors than, than they were, say, a year ago. And uh, I've got a good spread of uh, property companies that are standing at, at decent sort of discounts in, in, uh, t- to their asset values. Uh, things like Granger Estates, which is the largest res- residential uh, company. Dejan Holdings, um, which uh, has residential and commercial, plus a little bit in uh, America. Companies like Telford Homes, which um, is unloved because it, it uh, develops uh, properties in the outer suburbs of London. Uh, St Mobwin Properties, which develops uh, brownfield sites. Uh, all re- you know, really sort of quite attractive propositions. I've avoided the large property companies because, in much the same way as I said with pharmaceuticals and with um, oil, large oil companies, uh, larger property companies are going to find it much more difficult to increase their their asset values and earnings purely because of their size. Whereas the small and nimble ones. Uh, any sort of decent development can have a big impact on uh, earnings and asset values. So even though uh, things like British Land and so on, they are pretty big discounts, I think most people would would calculate, they're not yet of appeal to you at at these levels. No, uh, a bit boring uh, as far as I'm I'm concerned. And uh, yeah, I I mean, if you're a big fund with with billions under management, those are the sort of stocks that... um, you, you, you can only really invest in and, and therefore you, you can buy your British lands and your land securities quite safely, hang on to them and uh, you, you'll make a reasonable amount of money but you won't make as much money as some of the smaller ones uh, which are more nimble. Well let's come back then to the situation about, about the pound and I guess that's also a little bit about Brexit. Obviously since the uh, referendum we've had some interesting political developments but um, the markets have taken after initial shock, taking it all in their stride, as far as we can see. 
I, I guess you think that's the right reaction. Um, but perhaps you could explain why uh, you don't think that uh, Brexit is going to be an enduring problem for the markets, if that's your view. Well, effectively, um, the uh, firmness in stock markets had probably little to do directly with Brexit. It, it had more to do with the fall in, in sterling. And the fall in sterling uh, was very beneficial to the exporters and to companies with overseas earnings because of the translation effect of foreign uh, money into pound notes. And um, about 70% or so of earnings from the main index, the FTSE 100 index, are derived from overseas. So it's quite understandable that um, uh, investors have been chasing after these stocks because that's the area where you're going to get um, earnings um, upgrades. And uh, you've got a, a tailwind uh, sort, sort of behind them. Sterling has recovered a little bit, which has created sort of a slight sort of headwind compared to to what it was before. But nevertheless, Sterling is still quite um, at an attractive uh, sort of level. Uh, so far as Brexit's concerned, um, I think that one uh, has to look at a sort of slightly wider angle, both from the long term and the short term. From a longer long term point of view, I think that um, if we are detached from uh, Europe, which seems likely we're actually detached from some of the problems that Europe might have. If you look at the unemployment levels in Greece, Spain, Italy, Portugal, etc., that does sort of create uh, sort of complications. We've seen bank problems over there, etc. And the UK, I think, will be seen as a sort of separate area. And also, I think the pound will be seen as a separate currency, which obviously it is. So this could could easily see a recovery once the uncertainty of Brexit sort of, sort of out, out of the way. Um, I think that um, the, the UK is important to Europe and Europe will continue uh, um, trading with us. But more importantly, each of the companies that I see will give me their view on, on Brexit and none of them are, are really that concerned with there being a um, detrimental effect. I think the other point to bear in mind is the fact that um, with equities as a whole, bonds are so ridiculously expensive because of the fall in interest rates. Why buy a gilt when you're getting a, a level of income that's less than the rate of inflation? Bonkers, in my opinion. But nevertheless, you know, people do have to buy these because of the perceived safety. But I think equities are, are just, uh, you know, a no-brainer. You're, you're getting a, a much better return, either in dividend yield or alternatively in retained earnings, which is building up future dividends in the future. And, um, you know, it makes equities sort of quite, quite attractive. So I think that so far as Brexit's concerned, um, I'm not, not particularly worried, you know, provided there are enough cheap stocks around the place. I'd get worried when people are saying, well, it's different this time. You, you've got to buy something on, uh, you know, 2020 earnings rather than next year's earnings. And, um, you know, people are, start talking about um, pegs and all these sort of things that are justified high ratings in the market. Then I, I'd get quite nervous about the market. But I haven't. I don't think we've reached that stage at all um, uh, at the moment. And equally, again, from a, a stock picking point of view, I would look at my stocks when judging the market. So, uh, 
you know, if I've got enough cheap stocks around the place, then, then great stuff. But I am looking at the, this from a longer term point of view. And, um, you know, even though I will take a profit if a, if a share sort of goes up, I'll, I'll equally be prepared to hold something like Advanced Medical Solutions because they have got the uh, sort of potential there and still left in them. I learned a lesson from uh, ASOS. The online retailer, yeah. The online retailer. A stockbroker said to me, oh, you've got to come and see ASOS. Really exciting company, high multiple, but, you know, shame about that, but you've really got to come and see them. I went to see them. I was quite impressed. The company had put all its um, background um, staff and um, systems, etc., in place. And it only just sort of started to build up its um, sort of business. And I bought um, 150,000 shares at a price of 75p for the AIM fund. And as the share price went up, I, I kept being badgered to sell a few, which I did. I gradually reduced it. And I got out of my last little remnants, which is worth the value of the, the amount that I put into it, plus a little bit more at a price of, um, of £22, only to see the shares up to £70. But then, of course, they, they dropped back to £25 and, and, and they've subsequently uh, recovered again. But, you know, it, it's not wrong to, to uh, run your profits and it, it's, it's not wrong to uh, uh, hold your high multiple stocks, even though I don't like holding them. But it's right to be a hypocrite in this game. You know, if, you, if something feels right, then... then my God, you know, you, you've got to, uh, you, you've got to stick by that. But I still do tend to avoid, you know, certain areas of the market when it comes to aim shares. Perhaps you just quickly tell us what those areas of the market are. Then you've mentioned some of them already, I think. Implicitly, okay. but... Well, I, I don't really like financials. No, I have got, I have got a decent financial company there. I don't like biotech because uh, it takes such a long time to. Uh, get permissions if ever yeah i have i have got a profitable biotech company which has done me quite well um i don't like mining shares um i've got a couple that have, that have gone belly up but i got one that's been a, a really good sort of um you know you know investment for me uh, i don't like overseas companies coming on to the uk uh, market so my biggest and one of my most successful holdings is a bangladesh pharmaceutical company I don't really like um, sort of hotel groups, which uh, you'll find in my book, uh, the reason for this. And um, yeah, so there, there are lots of areas that I, I would avoid, but nevertheless, being a, you know, a hypocrite, if you can make money out of something, then by God, you know, you, you, you actually go for it. Well, the legitimizing hypocrisy is a very good, a very good theme, I'm sure. What do you think could derail this uh, current market then? If you don't, if you're not overly concerned about valuations, at least for the stocks that you're owning and buying? I think what, what could derail the market would be uh, an economic collapse, uh, like a banking crisis, uh, like, you know, problems in uh, in the US, uh, problems in Europe, etc., or problems, you know, downturns in, in China. That the, There are a lot of sort of global things that could upset the, the, the world economy. So effectively, um, I, I would be nervous about you know, a banking crisis, an economic crash, uh, any, anything like this at all. It doesn't seem likely at the moment, but those would be the factors I'd look out for, in which case I think then one, one should, should really sort of start getting out of, uh, you know, at least some of your uh, smaller company holdings. What about the prospect of a 
Corbyn-led Labour government? Would that fill you with that'd be, fear That would be, be brilliant for, for, for the stock market. Um, you know, we've seen in the past, Labour governments are really sort of quite, uh, quite, quite good. You, you, get a, you get a recycling of, uh, of money from nationalisation stocks, which, which I don't hold. Uh, and um, you'd, you'd find that, um, yeah, I mean, uh, people w- would, you know, be uh, still sort of investing in things. And of course, what tends to happen is that you do, you do tend to find that, um, you know, certain um, sort of socialist governments that do modify their, their ideas when they get into power. And um, uh, equally, you find that some, some Tory governments sort of put in place some, some uh, things that are not quite so, sort of acceptable. I think the Labour Party um, policies are probably a little bit on the sort of extreme side, but we have found in the past, you know, under, under the Blair government, which admittedly was, was much more Some like a Conservative tone. government, uh, <laughs> you know, things were sort of okay-ish. And uh, I'm not sure um, really whether um, a Corbyn government would, would necessarily um, be a, a, a bad effect on the market, uh, unless it sort of pushed... Um, Guilt yields up to sort of five or six percent, which would be a, a big worry because of the amount of um, credit that there is around the place that, that people have taken out in the past. And you know, I think because of this quantitative easing, which has been completely irresponsible, people are too highly borrowed, and uh, it makes it difficult to push up interest rates uh, a lot because the amount that people are going to be spending on their sort of mortgages, etc., it's just going to push the country into a deep recession. A standstill. It will bring the country to a, pretty much to an economic growth standstill. So you're not expecting uh, significant moves up in interest rates from the Bank of England, obviously. No, I think, I think they'll nudge things up a little bit, probably, but um, I think it's going to be impossible for them to uh, you know, push rates up too much. I think the more likelihood is we, we've seen you know US rates sort of nudge up a little bit. I think the, the likelihood is that you, you might find rates generally would sort of nudge themselves a, a little bit higher. But um, if you did get a, a, a decent rise in um, interest rates uh, from the Bank of England, it wouldn't all be bad because you'd find that a lot of companies that have got pension fund deficits, those deficits would disappear. Mm principally because of the crazy way that people revalue uh, uh, pension fund deficits based upon inter- interest rates uh, valuing uh, the um, liabilities the, ahead, yeah. the deficit for for the fund and and, and the liabilities and uh, if interest rates went up then the liabilities would actually come down and companies with with uh, pension fund deficits would very soon sort of revert into uh, companies with, with uh, a surplus. Um, it's a crazy, crazy world out there. So a rise in interest rates wouldn't be a bad thing for, uh, you know, some companies. Finally, uh, Paul, you've been in this business for quite a long time, as we've, as we've established. You started in the 60s. Uh, you obviously love what you're doing, and you've, otherwise you still wouldn't be doing it, I suspect. Uh, are you going to go on doing this for, for as long as you can? Is that, how, is that the plan? Yeah, not half, you know, uh, love it. Um, every day is a challenge. Every, every day is an, an exciting time. Every day you get new sort of company news sort of coming out. And um, the only setback, uh, you know, is um, the worst days of the year for me are, um, well, the worst day of the year for me is, is probably uh, Christmas Day because there's no football, <laughs> no stock market. And what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> 
And on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for coming in and sharing uh, your thoughts with us today. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels, including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free. If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.